Hey, good morning. And thanks for coming out in the snow and the cold. This will probably be the easiest time finding a seat you'll ever have on Sunday morning and parking spaces too. But thank you to all of you who came out and thank, thank you for those of you who are watching in line. We're starting a brand new series called The Jesus Gallery. But before I get into showing you the first picture, I want to take a moment and share with you why this series, I believe, is so important. It's a challenge for us in the 21st century to remember that this is still a supernatural experience, this thing with Christ, because we live in a world that's so steeped in the idea of transferring of information. You know, it's been called for the last 50 years the information age, and so we're accustomed to someone transferring information to us that we, we leverage and use, and our lives are better for it, hopefully, but the thing about Jesus is that it's not, just, it's not just that kind of simple basis. It is true that week after week, if you come here, you will get wisdom. There will be information that will be invested in you and me that when we walk out of here, if we put that to work, we'll be better off for it. But I want to show you why this series is so special. In fact, if I could find one verse in the Bible to explain what the Christian life is like, I would use 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It's been long, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Let's take a look at it right now. The Bible says, we all with unveiled face. Now we, that's us. Unveiled face might not mean a lot to us, but to the Jewish audience in the first century, they knew exactly what Paul was talking about. In the Old Testament, when Moses was called up on the mountain and he was in the presence of God, when he came down from the mountain, the experience of having been with God caused his face to shine. And he had to put a veil over his face in order to interact with people after that for a while. So to the Jewish audience in the first century, they, they knew what Paul was talking about. Basically, Paul is saying, look, we have an experience with God. There's nothing in between us and him. There's not a veil in front of our face. We're in the presence of God. Now, what happens? We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. Now, that's a very interesting expression because it doesn't say that we're looking in a mirror. It says we're looking as if we were looking in a mirror. Now, think for a moment. When you look in a mirror, whether it's in your car or in your bathroom or if you have a mirror with you today, when you look into a mirror, it's face-to-face, -face, isn't it? Your face is showing its reflection and you're looking into the mirror. But the thing about looking in a mirror that's going to be salient to us today is that when you look in a mirror, we tend to focus on what it is that we're looking at. And for instance, let me give you an example. How many of us have just sort of walked past a mirror and didn't catch something that we caught later on when we looked carefully into a mirror? We'll see something on our face that stands out. Now, isn't it interesting, the next time you look in a mirror, your, face, your, your attention will go straight to that spot that you picked up the last time you gazed intently in a mirror. So Paul is saying, we're not looking in a mirror, but we're looking as though we're looking in a mirror. And when we focus and we see something we've never seen before, well, that's what we've picked up up to this point. So what is it that we're looking at if it's not a mirror image? We're looking at the glory of Jesus. Now, the glory, glory is an interesting word. In all of my years of preaching, I've always had a difficult time trying to bring that concept into an English description. The purest definition of glory is light. 
And so in, in, in describing the character of God, God is so light, God is so awesome, so amazing, that we use the word glory. So one more time, Paul is saying, we're like Moses in the presence of God, except we don't have anything between us and God. We're, we're staring into the glory of God, and we're seeing things we've never seen before, and we're focusing on Jesus like we never have. So... What is it that we get out of that experience? I mean, because clearly Paul's building up for something. He said, we're looking with unveiled face, like we were looking in a mirror, but it's not a mirror, and we're looking at the glory of God. What happens? He said, we are being transformed. Now, this is different from just hearing information that we leverage and walk out of here and live a better life. Transformation is becoming something that we weren't before, or not become, or becoming something that isn't what it was before if it was harmful. Transformation is actually becoming a different person. In fact, in the, old, in the New Testament, when Jesus was on the earth, you remember there was a moment where he was transformed before his disciples, and they got to see him with some of his radiant glory that he had before he came to earth. Scripture tells us that when we look at Jesus and we focus on him and we begin to see him like we've never seen before, we actually become transformed. We become different people. Now, it's this next expression that really captures my attention. It says, from glory to glory. How do we as Christians become more like Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us God's intention is is that we focus on the person of Jesus. We are taken from one level of glory to the next level of glory. And this is beautiful to me. Now, there's a word that we don't use in church a lot because it's typically a theological term. And I, don't, I, don't, I want to make sure that if I ever teach theology, I make it very clear. Because I've heard a lot of sermons in my lifetime that were theological in nature. And I walked out of the church scratching my head trying to figure out what the preacher was talking about. But there is a word that used to be used a lot in church that we don't use much anymore because it's kind of a stained glass pipe organ word, but it's the word sanctification, and it freaks a lot of people out. But let me just tell you what sanctification means. It simply means God making us like Jesus. Now, there are three parts to sanctification. The first one is what we would call positional sanctification. At the moment you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your position legally is changed. You now are a daughter of God. You're a son of God. And legally speaking, at the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, even though you're just a baby in Christ and you've got a, like, you know, you got a million miles to go in your Christian walk, positionally, you are what the Bible describes as in Christ. If you were to die at that moment, you would go straight to heaven because legally in the court of heaven, you have been declared innocent in God's sight. But now on a practical level, we still have a long way to grow, don't we? And that's where theologians call it progressive sanctification because every day of our lives, God wants us to become more like Jesus than we were yesterday. I should be more like Jesus today than I was yesterday. Tomorrow, I should be more like Jesus than I was today. And then ultimately, we have what's called perfect sanctification. John writes about that in 1 John 3, 2. He said, when he shall appear, we shall be like him. So when Jesus comes back, we're going to be totally like Jesus, completely. So you see what I'm saying? Legally, it happens. Positionally, it happens at the moment you accept Christ. There's this progressive thing that's going on 
all through our lives where God is making us more like Jesus. And then ultimately, when Jesus comes, we'll be completely like him. I think you know when you look at that scripture that what we're talking about is that middle aspect in which day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, God is making us more like Jesus. Okay, let's go back and pick up the whole verse. What do we, what do we learn so far? We, with unveiled faces, look, focus on the glory of Jesus, and we're being changed. Now, faith comes hard for me, and the supernatural, while I believe in it with all my heart, I am the person who likes to see the evidence laid on the table. If I were sitting where you're sitting today, and I heard a minister say that by focusing on Jesus, I could actually be transformed, I would like to know how that happens. I mean, are we just talking about some sort of natural process that, that evolves? No, the Bible says it happens by the Spirit of the Lord. So whenever you focus on Jesus, God's Holy Spirit that is present inside of you actually begins to transform you as Christ becomes more real to you. And that's why I wouldn't miss a single one of these messages because we see wherever Jesus is lifted up, and people come in faith, it is a place where powerful things happen. It is a place where miracles happen. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I'm not trying to be hyper-spiritual about this. I just want to be in this place. I've talked to our leadership team. I've talked to our creative teams and our worship teams, and I've said this over and over. Guys, we do not need to draw people to Jesus. That is a supernatural work that we don't have the capability to do. God has never called us to draw people to Jesus. God has called us to lift Jesus up. Because Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I'll draw everybody to me. So that's my goal for these next eight weeks. I want us to lift Jesus up. I want us to go into the gallery. And I want us to see, to behold with unveiled face who Jesus really is. And the more we focus on him, the more it's going to transform us and the more it's going to change us. You know, just this. I haven't even said this in the other three services. I think a lot of us Christians are absolutely worn out taking all the responsibility personally for us to change our lives. And we struggle. And I think a lot of times we haven't really understood what God intends. God intends for us to focus on Jesus. And instead of keeping a bunch of rules, which God's rules are important, but keeping a lot of man-made rules, God wants us to see Jesus. And in that process, the Holy Spirit makes us more like him. Okay, that's out of the way. So let's go into the gallery this morning. I want to show you the first picture of Jesus that we're going to focus on. And in this particular picture, it's like strange stuff. You ever go into a gallery and stare at a picture or a portrait, and you're like, I don't even begin to understand why this is in this picture. Well, if you look at the baptism of Jesus, it's going to be a collage of difficult things to understand. First of all, there's a preacher. That's not uncommon. You're listening to a preacher right now. But this guy's no ordinary preacher. For one thing, instead of preaching in a church or a synagogue, he's out in the middle of nowhere. He's in the wilderness. Hey, if you're going to preach a sermon, you'd like to have as many people around as possible. But this guy has gone out into a wilderness to preach and nobody is around. And on top of that, he's got strange clothes on. He's got on what we might call buckskin and a leather belt. Back in those days, priests wore soft clothes. This guy is not Hart Schaffner and Marx. He's strictly Duluth Trading Company. And not only that, you talk about strange, his, his food, his food choices are peculiar. We did a series called Health, and we talked about food one, one week, but we wouldn't have put John's menu on the sermon because he ate locusts, locusts and wild honey. How do you cook a locust? 
I don't know. Do you barbecue them? Do you grill them? I'm not sure. And then on top of that, you know, John has one sermon. It's like it's the only sermon that he preaches. And the sermon goes like this. Repent, which means change your way of living, change your way of thinking that results in change of living. And then ultimately he keeps talking about somebody who's coming who's going to change everything. I mean, if you've gone out to hear John preach one one day and somebody asks you, what did this guy preach about? You'd say, well, he said that we should repent, we should change our way of thinking and change our way of living, and somebody is coming who's going to change everything. Were well, you going to go back to hear him today? Yeah, going to go back. Hear what he's going to preach on today. You get out there and you listen to him. He's preaching on, hey, you need to repent, change your way of living. Somebody's coming. He's going to change everything. Well, that's odd. He preached the same sermon two days in a row. I'll go back tomorrow and see what he preaches. Same message over and over again. Well, you might think that somebody so peculiar who is in, an, in no place, dressed in strange clothes, eating weird food, preaching the same sermon over and over, you might think that nobody would come here and preach. I mean, we've all heard stories of crazy prophets that nobody paid attention to. But it wasn't like that at all because the Bible tells us that people from the city poured out to hear, hear John preach. In fact, wicked King Herod liked to come hear John preach. But if all that stuff is not strange enough, let me tell you what was really peculiar. When people responded to the message and they said, hey, I'm buying in. I want to repent and I want to look forward to this person coming. John would take them down to the river and he would stick them under the water. Thankfully, he'd pull them back out. But it was called baptism. And time after time, he put people under the water and people would applaud. But one day it got very quiet. Because off in the distance, there was a solitary figure making his way to John, a guy about 30 years old. And there was something about him that caused the crowd to suddenly quieten. And even the preacher was in awe. And as the man gets closer to John, we hear this man say to John, I want you to baptize me. Well, that's not uncommon. John heard that every day, maybe a hundred times. But this time, John steps back, and he's like, I don't know that I should baptize you. I need you to baptize me. And if you got close enough, you might hear John say, I'm not even worthy to unloose your shoes. But this man who has approached John says something like this, I want you to go ahead and baptize me because it's part of God's plan. And we see him as he walks into the water, and John places him under the water, and brings him back out of the water. And then two things happen. Something, not exactly sure what it was, it looked like a dove, but something came and sat on this man when he came out of the water. And then there was a sound like thunder and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son whom I love and I am well pleased with. Now can you get that picture in your mind? John, the strange preacher in the strange place, wearing strange clothes, eating strange food, doing something strange called baptizing. And this solitary figure walks to him and asks to be baptized. And John said, I shouldn't baptize you. You should baptize me. But he says, I want you to do it anyway because it's part of God's plan. And when he baptizes the man, the voice of God comes from heaven and a dove or something like a dove comes and settles on him. You got the picture? Praise it. We got questions to ask. Let's ask four questions real fast. I mean, first of all, what is this thing called baptism? 
The one thing that we understand about baptism, it's not just something that people do in churches. It's always been a sign of identification. And so consequently, when a person is baptized, as they were in John's day, they are identifying with a message. They're saying, I am so tightly identified with this that I'm actually going to go through the motion as it would be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He died and was buried and he rose again. Now, here's something that we need to take into consideration today as we think about this picture. In John's day, and given the fact that most of his audience were Jewish, they would have gone through an experience when they were children. The boys, right after birth, would have been circumcised. The girls would have been dedicated. So consequently, they went through a religious experience when they were babies. But what John was challenging his audience to do was to do something that showed their faith. And many of us have been through that, depending upon our faith tradition. Some of us grew up in a church where when we were babies, our parents took us to the place of worship and did something that was called baptism. Others of us, I wasn't baptized as a baby. It wasn't part of my faith tradition, but we did something similar. It was called dedication. We still do that today. And there are other faith traditions in which there will be parents who will do something as an act of dedicating. And here's the thing. We say that we're dedicating the child, but in reality, what we're really doing is we're dedicating as parents our own selves to bring that child up in the way of God. And so what I want us to all understand is what John was teaching. He wasn't repudiating what their parents did. He just said, it's time now for you to make your decision. It's time for you to make your confession. When we read scripture, we discover something about baptism. Wherever we read about it, it's always done after a person has put faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There is no baptism in the Bible that is done before a person accepts Jesus because baptism is an external, tangible, visible symbol of an internal, intangible, invisible change. So whenever a person is baptized, just as John was inviting people to do, they were giving testimony to the fact that they had already made the decision to follow God. For many of us, that's a struggle, starting with yours truly. Because oftentimes we have a religious experience before we understand spiritually what God wants from us. And consequently, it's a testimony of something that hasn't happened yet. I often think about, you know, if you went down to one of the courtrooms in Sedgwick or Butler County and and you were on the stand giving testimony and the attorney asked you about something and you'd say, oh, this is going to happen in six weeks. And the attorney, you know, the judge would say, I'm sorry, you can't give testimony to something that hasn't happened yet. And consequently, many of us, when it comes to baptism, there's something that our parents did when we were very young that they were acting on their faith, but we've yet to give testimony to the change that God has made in our lives. I have a story of my own life that goes with this. Maybe this will help us understand. I was a pastor's kid when I was about five or six years old. I was playing in the living room of my house, and my dad, who's a great, great guy. In fact, he's with the Lord now, but one of the things I'm most thankful for was my dad was the same person at home that he was in church. And by the way, that's a lot harder than it looks. If my dad preached something at church, it was true at home too. I grew up struggling with faith. And I think if it hadn't been for my dad being so in, having so much integrity between what he, what he said and what he believed, because even, I don't know where I would be today, even when I was struggling, I had to look at my dad and say, my dad believes. 
And that was helpful to me in my faith journey. But when I was about five or six, I was playing one night, one Saturday night, in the living room of my house, and my dad wanted to talk to me about me accepting Jesus as my Savior and Lord. And I was playing with some plastic. This was before the days when kids had electronic devices to play with. I was actually using my imagination with uh, <laughs> some plastic figurines. I can't remember if they were cowboys or soldiers or whatever, probably a combination of such. And my dad said to me, he said, Mark, I want you to put your toys up, and I want you to come listen to me for a moment. So I did. Dutifully, I listened to him. He shared the good news of Jesus with me. And he asked me, so wouldn't you like to pray and accept Jesus? What I really want to do is get back to my toys. But I knew my dad wanted me to do that, so I prayed to you know, accept Jesus. I had no idea really what salvation was. It was just I was doing something my dad asked me to do. Just like some of us made a decision before the meter of our memory started running. Or maybe we were at camp and others were doing something, so we just kind of went along with him. So my dad said, okay, Mark, here's how this is going to work. I came from a small church, not a church like New Spring. And we used to have something called an invitation, and it was like soft, slow music at the end of the service, and the preacher gave people an opportunity to walk forward and tell the pastor what decision they had made. So dad said, now tomorrow in the service, your mother is going to bring you down to the front, and I'm going to pray with you, and then after that, I'm going to take you back, and I'm going to baptize you. And I said, okay. So I did exactly that. And my dad baptized me at the end of the service, or at least he put me underwater and brought me up out of it. And I'll be, I'll be, I'm just being completely candid with you. I don't think I had the foggiest understanding of what the gospel was. I was just too young to process it. I'm not saying that kids at that age can't. I just couldn't. But when I was eight years old on the playground of my school in Fort Worth, Texas, my, I was bending over to get a drink of water, and just as I did, I remembered that my dad had preached the day before that if you would ask Jesus to forgive you, he would come into your life and forgive you of every sin you've ever committed. And at eight years of age, I had quite a rap sheet. And here's the deal. You would have never known if you watched that scene that an eight-year-old kid just made the biggest decision of his life. I just bent over to get a drink of Fort Worth water, and I got a drink of living water. But now I have a problem on my hands. I'm a pastor's kid. I mean, everybody in my church said, yeah, Mark was saved when he was five, six years old. We were there. We saw his baptism. But the problem is I wasn't saved back then, and my baptism wasn't genuine because it was on the wrong side of my salvation. I'd given testimony to something that wasn't real. I would love to tell you that at eight years of age, the next Sunday, I walked forward and I talked to my dad, and I said, I need to be baptized. But I didn't. There were six years that went by. And I can tell you that there probably wasn't an invitation in the church that I didn't like think I should do something about this. And I remember the day I was 14 years old, and in, that was, it was a small church building, and all of us tough teenage boys, we sat on the very back seat of the church so that we could just act disinterested and show how tough we were. But I remember in the service, I, 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 uh, I, it, when the invitation came, I like put one foot out in the aisle, but then I was too nervous to go, and I put it back. And then I put my foot out in the aisle, and I put it back. And last night, I told the audiences in the two services that it, it was the Texas two-step. But my security guy told me, no, it's not the Texas two-step. That's the hokey pokey. So I... <laughs> But I'll never forget the moment when I put my foot out in the aisle and I went forward. It was like God took me the rest of the way and I said, Dad, I need to get my baptism on the right side of my salvation. Because you can't give testimony to something that hasn't happened yet. So what John was saying to these people who had, at, at childhood, they had, their parents had done things to dedicate them or to show faith. They had shown their faith. 
the, the parents' faith. But John is saying to now these people who were of age, who could think for themselves, John is saying, it's time now for you to make your declaration, your declaration of faith. And that's what baptism is. But now that brings us to another question. And that question is, why did Jesus need to be baptized? I know why I needed to be baptized. I mean, I was a sinner. I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. When I was baptized, I was identifying with Jesus. I was saying, I want my life to identify with the one who was dead, who was buried, and who rose from the grave, which is what baptism symbolizes. And I'm also saying, the old mark is dead and buried, and a new mark has come alive in Jesus. I'm a sinner. I needed to be saved. I won't be real clear about something. Baptism doesn't save you. It's the symbol of what saves you or what has saved you. One of the uh, illustrations I've used through the years to talk about baptism is a wedding ring. Now, I, don't, I don't marry couples anymore, but back in the day, I used to marry a lot of couples. And the thing about it is, would it po- be possible for a couple to get married without a wedding ring? Sure. Is it possible for a person to go to heaven without being baptized? Absolutely. Thief on the cross proves that. But most of us who are married wear wedding rings, don't we? Because that wedding ring is a symbol. But the thing I would point out is that it's not just a symbol of jewelry. It's a symbol of a, and it's not even just a symbol of marriage. It's a symbol of a relationship with a specific person. So I understand why I was baptized. But the question is, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Because he never sinned. He never did anything wrong. Why would he need to experience baptism? Well, I just talked about a few moments ago what couples do. How many times have I stood right here and married a couple? And I'll ask the the groom, do you have a token of your affection? And the groom or the best man will put the bride's ring in my hand. And then I'll hand it to the groom and he'll slip it on the finger of the bride. And I'll ask the bride, do you have a token of your love for your husband? And she will put a wedding ring in my hand and I'll hold it up and I'll put it back on her, give it back to her. And then she'll slip the ring on her husband's finger. See, here's the thing. The reason why Jesus was baptized was not that he was a sinner who needed salvation. He was identifying with us. He was standing at the altar exchanging rings with us. That's important because I've had people who would say, well, I don't know. I mean, to be baptized, to be like in front of people and like go be put put underwater and out of water, I'm not really sure. I dig that. I thought about that too when I was putting it off. But one day it came very clear to me that the Son of God hung naked on a cross for six hours with thorns in his head and nails in his hands and feet with people laughing and spitting and jeering. And I'm thinking, if the Son of God is standing at the altar with a wedding ring, if he's hanging on a cross for me, the least I can do is show the world that I'm identifying with the one who died, who was buried, and who rose from the grave. And that's why Jesus was baptized. He was identifying with you. He was slipping the ring on your hand to show you that we have a relationship that's eternal. Well, the third question that I want to ask is, who are these two guys? Because we know that John is a preacher and now he's baptizing Jesus. Are they just kind of like on the same level? Is it like, like they, are they like the dynamic duo where they kind of are the same kind of person. I want to take you to the book of John, chapter 1, and I want to read some verses to you that help us understand the difference between these two people. I'm going to pick it up in verse 6. 
God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light. Now notice the distinction there. John is not the light, but his message is about this other person. To tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. They, I love this, they are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word, that's God, became human. Wow. If I preached the rest of my career on that one line, I don't think I could exhaust it. The word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his, that's our word again from where we started, his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So God is making it very clear. These two guys are not on the same level. John is just a preacher. He's like you or me. But the one that he's announcing is God who comes in skin. The ultimate problem that the human race has ever had from day one is when our first parents sinned and passed it on to you and me. And the problem is that no human can be a savior because we're all infected with the same disease. Think about it. Just put yourself in God's place for a moment to the extent that you can. How is God going to rescue a doomed planet? How is God going to rescue a doomed race? He could take the best one of us today and we couldn't even save ourselves, much less save the rest of the world. There was only one way that God could do it, and that is that God himself would come into our world and take on skin, human flesh, run the table, live the life that we can't live, and then put that life on a cross and pay the price for our sins. In essence, where God would take our sin on himself in order that he might give us his righteousness. Well, that brings me to the fourth and the final question that I want us to look at today. What makes Jesus so special? You know, I have friends, some who are non-theists, some who are members of other religions, and I have friends who say, well, I can see that Jesus might be an important person and a wonderful teacher and might teach a wonderful way of living, but then there are other teachers too. There's people of different faith traditions and what makes Jesus so special? Now, maybe we should just go to a more fundamental question. Is he that special? Is he just one among many gods? I mean, I, I talked to a person of another religion one time, and this person was part of a, a religion that worshiped millions of gods. And when I talked about Jesus, it was like, okay, I can always use one more god. Is Jesus distinct? And if he is, what makes him distinct? Wouldn't you agree that's a fair question, whether you're a rock rib Christian or you're a non-theist? I think the message is that Jesus is special. But if he is, why? And then where does that take us if we get the answer? Well, let's go back to when Jesus was baptized. Because I think it was, well, the Bible says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who... Next two words are huge. Takes away the sin of the world. You and I have a problem that will drag us to hell. Absent. Something taking our sin away.
Again, you gotta realize that John's audience was primarily Jewish, and they were gonna have an understanding that the rest of us might not have. They would have immediately probably taken a sharp intake of breath when he said takes away because they were familiar with something. Well, it was called the Day of Atonement, and it's still celebrated. My Jewish rabbi friends, in fact, I went to, went to the synagogue to hear a Jewish rabbi friend of mine. He's, he's passed now, but he said, I, he used to say, I watch you on television every week, but you've never heard me preach. I want you to come hear me preach. And so he said, we're going to break the fast. I want you to come hear me preach my what we would call Day of Atonement message. It started back in the days of Moses. The people knew that they were sinners and something had to happen with their sin. So real quickly, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting close to running out of time, so I'm going to go real fast here. But on the Day of Atonement, there, they would come to the tabernacle or later the temple, and there would be two lambs. And the tabernacle and the temple had an inner chamber that was separated by a curtain, really creating two rooms. The whole chamber was called the holy place. The internal chamber was called the holy of holies or the most holy place behind the curtain. And in that holy of holies or most holy place, there was only a piece of furniture. It was a box, a box made of wood and covered with pure gold. But the lid of the box was pure gold itself. It was called the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat, there were two golden angels, two golden cherubim. And again, not just anybody could go into the Holy, Holy of Holies, only the high priest, and he could only go in one day a year on the Day of Atonement. So when he was getting ready to perform his, his responsibilities on the Day of Atonement, he would take two lambs. And they would, we would say today, we'd roll dice, or they would cast lots to see which lamb was going to take which responsibility. And there would be a lamb that would be the sacrificial lamb that would be slain in its blood. The high priest would go under the curtain and he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would take his finger and he would sprinkle blood seven times between the two golden angels on the lid of the, mercy, on the, lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. But then there was something very interesting that took place with the other lamb. That lamb was called the scapegoat. I'm just going to read to you. Could I read it for a moment out of the book of Leviticus, which is the Old Testament Moses is writing about the Day of Atonement? And this is what the Bible says about the scapegoat. And just listen to this. He will lay, that's the high priest, both of his hands on the goat's head and confess over it all the wickedness, all the rebellion, all the sins of the people of Israel. In this way, he will, what a beautiful word, he will transfer the people's sins to the head of the goat. Then a man specially chosen for the task will drive the goat into the wilderness. As the goat goes into the wilderness, it will carry all the people's sins upon itself into a desolate land. And that happened year after year until there was no temple. But you know, people are smart. And in Moses' day, the people used to think about, well, wait a minute. I mean, if, if this lamb is going to carry our sins away, why do we have to do this every year? And, and why do we have this ceremony? I mean, and every time we do this, it just reminds me that I'm a sinner. And, and yeah, somebody's taking this lamb out into the wilderness, but like, why are we doing it every year? Well, the book of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 gives us the answer. It says it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to, watch this, take away sin. I hope this has never happened to anybody, but you ever get into such bad shape that you're just basically living on a credit card? 
You're just basically taking care of your weekly expenses by just putting it on a card. What's gonna happen? Who's gonna pay it? I don't know. I gotta have food, gotta pay the light bill, just living on a credit card. Thankfully, I've never been there, but I've had friends who have been there. It's a tar- terrible place to pay, to be because you're just rolling, rolling the debt forward, right? Rolling it forward, and someday it's gonna have to be paid. That is what happened on the Days of Atonement for all the hundreds and thousands of years. It was like the sin was just rolled forward into a bigger pile and a bigger pile. That it's put on the credit card. That's why when John saw Jesus coming, his audience was amazed to hear the words, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm a little nervous about preaching this in 2019 for a specific reason. We live in an age where people oftentimes don't think they have any sins. And it's sort of like, how dare someone say that something is wrong? That may sound sympathetic on its first basis, but it's one of the most cruel, demented things that anyone can ever do. Because if a person feels like they have no sin, there is absolutely zero that God can do for that person. I mean, Jesus said, I came to save sinners. That's why he came. If you're not a sinner, he can do you no good. You're on your own. But I think people who are objective, people who are reasonable, who even contemplate the idea of a perfect God will know that we are sinners. Now, I don't have that problem that I don't think I'm a sinner. My problem, I feel like King David felt in Psalm chapter 40 where he said, my sins pile up so high I can't see my way out. Is that how you feel sometimes? That's how I feel. Even though I've been a child of God for all these years, I was like a stuff I want to get corrected and I can't seem to get it corrected. I take two steps forward and one step back and here I am doing the same thing, saying the same thing again. And on top of that, I can, I'm concerned about the things that I do wrong, but I'm even more concerned about all the stuff I should have done that didn't do. I didn't do. Yeah, I feel like David, my sins pile up so high I can't see my way out. But then I hear John say as he sees Jesus coming, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Have you ever thought about what it's going to be like when you stand before God? I think about that. You know, I mean, you know, if, how many, if you've ever been called into a job interview with a CEO, that can make you chew your nails. If you've ever had to stand before a judge, that, that can make you nervous. But, but imagine standing before the creator of the universe. I've had, I've had sort of smart like people tell me, why well, when I get to heaven and I stand before God, I'll tell you, you won't tell God nothing. I mean, you can read about the people in God's presence. And so I, I get a little shaky when I think about standing before God until I read what God says in his word. Someday I'll stand before God and maybe an angel or someone will call my name and cue me up that it's my time to stand there and God will say, calling Stephen Mark Hoover forward. And then the books will be open and there will be my name. And God says, you know, when I see his name, it says right underneath it, see Jesus Christ. 
because the Lamb of God came, God in skin, ran the table for 33 years, lived a life that you and I couldn't live. Then he laid that life on a Roman cross, and the way God saw it, the blood that came out of his body was a currency that took my sins away. And he didn't just pay for it. He took them away, never to be seen again, so that when God looks at me, it's flawed and it's failed and it's screwed up as, as I can be. God looks at me and sees me innocent in his sight. When you look at that picture of Jesus standing there before John the Baptist to be baptized, that's what I want you to see, that God has come to take your sins away. The Bible says this in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Oh, I love this expression. No longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be sin, one translation says, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Two questions and we're out of here. And if you're watching online or watching on television, I would ask you the same question. Who's here today? Or who's watching today? And you need this change. You need this new destiny. Maybe, maybe you've been in religion like I grew up in religion and you learn, you're thankful for the good things that you learned but for the first time it's finally clear to you this is not about what I do, it's about what Jesus has done for me and the Lamb of God has come to take my sins away. How do I get in on that? Well, the Bible tells us it's a gift. God's not asking you to join our church although we'd love to have you here. But he's not asking you to join a church. He's not asking you to community service. He's sure not asking you to give money. He's asking you to receive a gift. He's asking you to trust. Our audience is so much smaller today because of the snow than usual, but it's large enough that I can't do this, but I'll tell you what I wish I could do. I wish I could walk to every one of you today and look you at the face, look you in the eye, and I would say, would you trust Jesus as your Savior? Just like I used to stand here before brides and grooms and ask him if you'll take this woman or take this man. I would ask you, I would, I would look at you and say, will you take Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? I wish I could. So let it be that I will just ask you from the stage and you can decide. But if you're here today and you say, I get it, I, I realize that God loves me and he's made a way for me to be right with him, not through what I do, but what somebody else has done for me. Well, if that's the case, my first question is, would you like to do that right now? And I'm going to ask all of us to bow our heads. If you have invited Christ into your life, you can pray for those who will be making that decision right now. I'm going to pray a prayer slowly, and then you can, you can pray it with me. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I ask you to forgive me and to make me your child. In Jesus' name, amen. Hang on, one more question. By the way, if you just pray with me to accept Christ, I have a gift I want to give you. Go to any info center all around the campus and just say, I prayed with Mark. That's all you'll have to say, and they'll give you a gift box. But I have one more question. That gift box has a Bible and some cool stuff that will help you make your start. My next question is, how many of you here today are like me, and you need to get your baptism on the right side of your salvation? 
We want to help you every way we can with that. And we're, we're set up to do that. You can check us out on the web or you can text 97,000 and, and text Watermark to that number and we will get you, we will help you every step along the way. And it'll be something like I experienced that you'll never forget as long as you live. Guys, thank you so much for coming out in the snow this morning. We'll see you next weekend. <laughs>